Bless you, folks. Thank you so much, Noe. That's a guy not to be taken for granted. What a blessing. Thank you, brother. I have missed hearing from you. Noe selects the hymns for the beginning of our time together, and he takes it so seriously. He seeks the Lord, and he prays, and I trust that guy's judgment. Tonight's was beautiful, wasn't it? Jesus paid it all. Uh, that means those of us who accepted him are no longer to be considered debtors. We're free. Uh, what he has done has been credited to our account. So in spite of all else transpiring in our day, the most fundamental uh, issue of life has been settled. We have right standing with the God who one day we will stand before. We owe him nothing now except the sacrifice of praise. And that's a very, very good thing to render to him. Jesus paid it all. I had a good day today. I had a chance to share that message with someone today. I recommend to you that you talk of Jesus to someone when you get a chance. There's nothing more refreshing and exhilarating. And what's interesting, uh, it is that in spite of the person's response, uh, be it positive or negative, somehow you feel most used of God and most in the center of his will when you're representing him by declaring the gospel message. So in this day, which I think is characterized by increasing darkness, we are light bearers. We've been illuminated by Jesus, the light of the world. So let's just make it our business to pierce the darkness with conversation about the Lord Jesus. I wish you could have seen the conversation I had. You would have been impressed with my inadequacy in doing it. And you, you would be encouraged to do the same. I was awkward. I was tense. Uh, it wasn't a smooth presentation at all. And it's irrelevant because the gospel is the power of God for salvation, right? Not the gospel sharer. So if you know Jesus, you are as equipped as anyone could be to tell them what you know about Jesus. I encourage you to do so. Well, it's good to see you again. I've been absent a little bit, but boy, have you been in good hands. We're so grateful for Dr. Denny Autry and for Dr. Freeman Tomlin. And don't you think it's odd that the one Jewish guy at this church is not a doctor? Everybody else is a doctor, but the little Jewish kid is just a guy. You know what I mean? Rabbi, call me rabbi. Do you? Or rabbit, whatever you'd like. We began a study of Hosea about eight years ago, it seems, and uh, it's my privilege to continue tonight where we left off in this great, great book, Hosea, the theme of which, as you recall, is God's unfailing love to unfaithful people. That means folks like us. And this concept, which is novel and profound, uh, has been illustrated to us through the unusual marriage of two characters, Hosea and Gomer. Unusual because Gomer was a loose woman. She had a fancy for men other than her husband. God saw it coming and nonetheless required that Hosea take her as his wife. The mystery is solved when you see it's a way of God 
um, uh, depicting for us the extent of his, here it is, unfailing love for unfaithful people. As with Hosea and his unfaithful bride, uh, so too with Almighty God and unfaithful people like us. And so what's going to happen now, we're going to begin looking at chapter 5, is that there's a transition from the real-life story, which really gets your attention, uh, the story between Hosea and Gomer, and now for the rest of Hosea, there's almost no uh, direct and deliberate reference to those two characters And the reason is the book is not about them. It's about God and his bride. And so at this point in chapter 5, you'll see a transition from that partnership uh, between Hosea and his unfaithful bride to God and his unfaithful covenant partner, namely Israel. When this was written, Israel, the nation, was in decline morally and spiritually. And that being the case, the context, we read this now in Hosea chapter 5, verse 1. Hear this. Notice the people groups. O priests, give heed, O house of Israel. Listen, O house of the king. This is an indictment on all strata of society. A guilt resided with all classes of people in that day, be they regular people or priests or even politicians. For the judgment applies to you. Nobody was guiltless then nor now. For you have been a snare at Mizpah and a net spread out on Tabor. What does this mean? All uh, members of society were guilty and sin abounded throughout the extent of the land. So Mizpah was a place east of the Jordan River. The Jordan River runs north to south and is a dividing line between Israel and its neighbors to the east. Mizpah was, became a center of idolatry in ancient Israel uh, to the east of the Jordan River, and Tabor became a place of idolatry to the west. It's a way in which God is saying every person and in every place uh, you have rebelled against me. You are apostate. You've hardened yourself. Is this talking about ancient Israel or modern-day America? Good night from California to New York and Chicago in the middle. Uh, A spiritual and moral decay and decline, just as it was thousands of years ago in ancient Israel. Uh, You may be interested in having a look at this. Uh, It is, whoops, I went too fast. This is Mount Tabor. Um, if you've been to Israel, perhaps you've seen it. Uh, It's a very smooth-shaped, some people say it looks like a belly button, and and there it is. Uh, And it's uh, of biblical significance. It's located in a valley called the Jezreel Valley. It's very pastoral and peaceful, but not tonight. As we sit here... There's cataclysm transpiring in this land of Israel. 
a sliver of real estate that once again, it insists on getting the intention of the world, just as the Bible tells us. The focal point of the spiritual battle between Satan and Savior, the battle behind the scenes, is not Washington, D.C., it's not Rome, Italy, it's not Mecca, it's Israel. This is the place where God has chosen to distinguish himself, receive glory, and one day establish himself as king of kings. Though we may not be familiar with that, I assure you, Satan is. He's a student of the Bible, you know. And he sees that Jerusalem is a focal point of attention for the Lord Jesus. And because he's aroused by jealousy, he wants it. Now, I just gave you an explanation for what's happening in Israel today. We can make it complicated if we're thinking only of geopolitical considerations, but it's a spiritual battle between Satan and Savior. Now, I read the rest of the Bible, Savior wins. So what is our responsibility now as Christians? I, 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 we can have an opinion on uh, Hamas or um, Hezbollah or the Palestinians or uh, uh, the Jews. We can have our opinions and they may differ. Uh, but the primary and principal agenda of we who are uh, citizens of heaven and whom have been redeemed by the Lord Jesus must be a redemptive agenda. As a Jew, I must discipline myself not to be overcome either with fear or anger. Here they come after us again. And so it brings back a history of pogroms and holocausts, and you get a little paranoid till you realize, wait just a second, uh, the king of kings, whose name is Jesus, is seated on the throne. He's fully in control. So our agenda in prayer, I, I would suggest it to you, is not to pray against anyone, but pray instead that the gospel of peace would go forth to all people, Palestinian people, Muslim people, Jewish people, for God is no respecter of persons. We don't put a higher evaluation on one people group than any other if you would like um, a suggestion on what to pray, I would recommend Psalm uh, 122, verse 6. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they... Did I give you the right reference? Okay, thanks. Because I'm getting a little older and I don't remember anymore. But okay. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they prosper who love you. Do you love Jerusalem? May you prosper. Pray. What does it mean to pray for the peace or shalom of Jerusalem? Well, I'll give you my take on it. It means two things. Pray that the gospel of peace would find uh, welcoming hearts now, and pray that the Prince of Peace will, will be welcomed through the gates of Jerusalem later when he returns. That's what it is to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. I, I would commend that verse to you. And... Uh, uh, um, I've tried to simplify briefly what is a complicated situation. There's been a coming together of many, many factors in Israel leading to the upheaval in the land uh, today. On another occasion, we'll talk about it. For now, 
pray for the peace of Jerusalem. That's the best thing. Okay, so we looked at Mount Tabor. Now here's Hosea chapter 5, verse 4. Their deeds will not allow them to return to their God. For a spirit of harlotry, interesting that theme, which is uh, uh, introduced through the uh, loose, sordid life of Gomer is the terminology God is using, sadly, of his own betrothed, Israel. He's saying they've been affected by a spirit of harlotry. It's within them, and they don't know the Lord. Well, they surely knew of him, but they did not know him in a personal, life-changing way. And here what you see is evidence of the fact that sin, unrepented of, can become obsessive habitual, addictive. We can call it a stronghold. They became uh, captive, held onto uh, by their own sin. So in this case, their deeds wouldn't even allow them to return to the Lord. Uh, They had so uh, become enveloped by darkness at this point, they couldn't even see their way out. And Hosea 5, 6 uh, goes on to say, they will go with their flocks and herds to seek the Lord, but they won't find him. He's withdrawn from them. What's that all about? Well, this is the deliberate, sad and tragic hiddenness of God. Of all the tragedies that may befall a person, this is the most tragic. If you can't find God, because he's chosen to remove himself from you. That's the biggest tragedy of all. That's what befell ancient Israel. Here they come with their flocks and herds ready to offer them in sacrifice. They were enveloped with religiosity. They're going to church, if you will. And God says it really doesn't matter. That doesn't impress me. You you see, they were outwardly going to worship, but inwardly their hearts remained far from him. And folks, what he's after are not our sacrifices. He's after our heart. They were going to seek the Lord with sacrifices and offerings, but not with a contrite heart. Therefore, he hid from them. And the text goes on to say, now in verse 10, The princes of Judah, remember we spoke about the kingdom was divided, 10 tribes in the north referred to as Israel, two in the south referred to as Judah. Israel went bad first, now Judah as well. The princes of Judah have become like those who move a boundary. On them, I will pour out my wrath like water. What does this mean? In that day, a land... Ownership was marked by stones. These are actual boundary stones of an ancient kind found in Israel. That's how they would mark the boundaries of a parcel of land under this person's ownership or that. And what this is essentially saying is that God is accusing the very leaders or princes of Judah of moving illegally, criminally, the boundary stones marking someone else's land. Now, whether they actually did this is questionable. This may be a metaphor of the fact that the very leaders of Israel came to lack such character that they become like common thieves. 
And now we read verse 12. Therefore, I'm like a, a moth to Ephraim. Ephraim was the largest city in the north. It represented all of the 10 northern tribes and like rottenness to the house of Judah. So here, I hope you had a good dinner. This is, uh, this is, uh, this is nothing, is it? This is, uh, wait, wait, don't go away. Don't go away, I'll get it. Oh, well, there's supposed to be a moth. Is there? Oh, you know what? I need to sit where you're sitting. Oh, look at that. See, I don't. Oh, yeah, there it is. Never mind. That's what happens when you deal with rookies. Okay, so that's a moth. I put it up there for no reason except I wanted to get your attention. And boy, did I botched the whole thing. What's the idea of a moth and rottenness? Well, folks, they represent slow decay. That's what's being referenced here in this verse. A moth and rottenness are symbols of slow decay. In other words, the Lord himself is slowly, patiently, yet decisively leading his own people towards destruction. That's what's happening. And it goes on here to say in verse 13, when Ephraim saw his sickness, so they were aware of the fact that something's wrong. When he saw his sickness, and when Judah saw his wound, they had awareness that something is awry. What did they do? Well, then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to King Jareb. But he's unable to heal you or to cure you of your wound. Look at this. They made a diagnosis that's sort of correct. There's something wrong with our society. What we're doing is not working. Things are in decline and in decay. We need a physician. And instead of going to the great physician, they went to Assyria. And just to show you how irrational this is, Assyria becomes the very instrument in the hands of God sent against Israel to judge her which leads to this principle, I think it's accurate. The very things we choose to depend on in place of God will often be the things that lead to our own demise. You depend on things on the computer of a sexual kind to give some temporary pleasure, it can get a grip on you and lead to your demise. You depend on a little sip of this or that once in a while just to relieve stress and relax you and fill you with some measure of pleasure, and it can end up having you. That's the way it is. So we can accurately diagnose the problem, but when we go to the wrong physician, that physician prescribes the wrong medicine, and that's what happened with ancient Israel. I see it happening in modern-day America. We are aware of the fact that our society is in trouble, and yet everybody's looking in all the wrong places. We look for a new president. We look for a new political party. We look for this, that, and the other thing. These are not necessarily wrong things to be looking for better leaders. I don't mean that, but they're not the Savior. They're not meant to be. Uh, run to Jesus, my fellow Christians. Run to Jesus. My favorite hymn is, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light 
of his glory and grace. Run to Jesus, we above all. Now look at the next verse. It's an interesting contrast. Verse 14, I will be like a lion. In the prior verse, we read about God coming like a moth, but here he says, I'll be like a lion to Ephraim and like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, I'll tear to pieces and go away. I'll carry away and there will be none to deliver. Folks, moths eat slowly. Lions quickly tear its prey to pieces. You see? So here's what I think God is saying. When a nation turns from God, judgment may at first move slowly. But then, if further action is required to correct things, then judgment will come in another way, namely as a young lion tearing its prey to pieces. In my estimation, we here in America are still sort of in the moth stage of God's judgment. But if we do not repent, I believe we will quickly move into the lion stage of God's judgment. Pray for America. Pray for revival amongst us and in our churches so as to be salt and light. We're the only hope of America. We're the only hope to keep it from the lion stage of God's judgment. Now, verse 15 is next. I'll go away. That's what God says. I'll go away and return to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face, meaning to seek a personal relationship. In their affliction. They will earnestly seek me. And now we see the explanation why God allows bad times to befall his own people. Now we see it. It's not to destroy his people. It's to deliver them from their own sin. His love, I've used this expression before, is not a pampering love. It's a perfecting love. And folks, oftentimes, here's the reality. We respond better to times, to God in times of adversity than in times of prosperity. I hear David saying in Psalm 119, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. He says, furthermore, it is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. And so you see God's intent here. In their affliction, they will earnestly Seek me. That's what he says. And now in uh, chapter 6, verse 1, you see that God's intent seems to be working uh, because Isaiah here encourages his people to do this. Come, let us return to the Lord. For he has torn us, but he will heal us. He has wounded us, but he will bandage us. Folks, God is willing to hurt us because he desires ultimately to heal us. That's the way it is. To be sure, Israel's punishment was deserved, but the God of all mercy and grace stood by, ready to welcome and restore his people, contingent on their repentance. But something terrible happens, though there looks like a brief sort of a Well, sadly, a token kind of repentance 
We read this sadly in verse 4. What shall I do with you? Here, if I can use a human term, here you see the frustration of God. He betrothed himself to Israel. He entered into a covenant like unto a marital covenant. And she has gone astray, uh, just like Hosea's bride. And so God, in frustration, says, What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? For your loyalty is like a morning cloud, temporary, and like the dew which goes away early. Herein is God's cry of frustrated, unreciprocated love. What else he lets us see into his heart? What else could he possibly do to move his own people to sincere repentance? Their loyalty to him was token. It was lip service. It was here one minute and gone the next. And here God makes it clear what he's looking for. I think this perhaps is the key verse of the book. For I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. That's a verse worth memorizing. Are you amazed by this? The Lord Jesus read that, knew it, memorized it. How do I know that? He quoted it two times in Matthew's gospel, in Matthew chapter 9 and Matthew 12. You can check me out later. He quoted it to religious leaders, Pharisees. And he quoted to them, keep your sacrifice. That's not what God delights in. He delights in loyalty rather than sacrifice and the knowledge of God rather than burnt offering. So if you're wondering, what is God looking for? On my part, what's his desire? What gives him pleasure? It's this, loyalty rather than sacrifice. So sacrifices, even the ones authorized by God himself, were absolutely valueless and meaningless to him if offered not out of a heart of love, but out of a heart of religious tradition and ritual. So Israel faithfully regularly brought animals for sacrifice, but they didn't bring themselves as a living sacrifice. And in so doing, they missed what God really wants, a deep, meaningful, close relationship with him. He longs for his people to long for him. He's not interested in religious tradition. Folks, if a person has been unfaithful, to his or her spouse. What do you imagine the offended spouse desires? Do you think costly gifts is what the offended, crushed spouse is looking for? I don't think so. It's love and loyalty that that one desires. So too God himself. When people, even God's people, are disloyal to him, all kinds of religious behavior to try to appease him is not what he's looking for. He does not delight in these things. He delights in loyalty rather than sacrifice. And let me camp out just for a minute or two on this word loyalty. It's this word, uh, that's what it looks like on the top in Hebrew, chesed. 
chesed. It's an unusual and special word. It kind of means loving kindness and devotion. This is the loyal love of God, which he shows to those who are his. Chesed love, covenant love, marital love. And that's the kind of love God desires in return from we who are the bride of Christ. Chesed love. This desire by God is encapsulated in what are perhaps the holiest words in Judaism. We Jews recite these words, which I'll share with you in just a minute, every time we gather together for worship. They come from Torah, or the first five books of the Old Testament, written by Moses. These words are found in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 to 6. We call them the Shema based on the first word, which simply means hear, listen. Uh, this is what it sounds like. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. It means hear, O Israel. The Lord is our God. Uh, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and with all your might. Love for God is the number one priority for the people of Israel. Love for God is the number one priority for us. That's what he wants. His heart burns for our loving hearts, just as Hosea's undoubtedly did for Gomer's heart. Furthermore, he delights in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Now, folks, knowledge can simply mean the accumulation of facts about God. Many people, even atheists, you may be surprised to know, may have this kind of knowledge of God. But, 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 but that's not what God is looking for, and that's not the word for knowledge used here. The word for knowledge used here alludes to much, much more than just a factual knowledge of God. It means more than head knowledge. It's a deep, personal, passionate kind of knowledge that affects one's thoughts and actions and the totality of one's being. The Hebrew word for this word, knowledge, is the same word used in this verse from Genesis. Listen, Adam knew, that's the word, Adam knew his wife Eve, and she bore a son. Well, you know that means intimacy. Sexual intimacy. That's the very word for knowledge used in our Hosea text. This is the kind of love God wants from us. This is the kind of devotion and depth and passion and intimacy that God is yearning for. That's what he wants. This knowledge is not information-based only. It is about knowing God to such an extent that we know how God feels when we turn from him. It's that knowledge. And so he has given us the marriage of Hosea to Gomer in order to help us know how God feels when we, his bride, are unfaithful to him. As Hosea was crushed and hurt by his wife's unfaithfulness, so too is God hurt when those of us 
who are wedded to him are unfaithful to him. He's big. He's sovereign. He's the Alpha and Omega. He has no beginning nor any end. He spoke all that there is into existence, and yet he hurts and is humiliated, just as Hosea was when his wife was unfaithful. God has chosen to be affected by how we live. He's not the God of Islam or Judaism or Shintoism or Buddhism. He's not such a transcendent great beyond that he's unaffected by what his devotees do. He has so connected himself to us that what we do impacts on him. Think of it. And this is the kind of knowledge that he wants. I want you to know how I feel when you turn your back on me. I've tried to help you in the first four chapters of Hosea, he says, by giving you this costly picture of a marriage in which the man was suffered from unrequited love. His wife went astray. How Hosea felt is how I feel when you are unfaithful to me. I'm not angry at you, God says. I'm broken and hurt. And I'm humiliated. That's what God says. He wants us to have that kind of knowledge. Hosea is trying to give it to us. In fact, he's referred to by some as the uh, prophet of God's broken heart. That's what this book does. Peels back the layers and gives us an inside look at the hurt heart of Almighty God. God wants us to know how our hardened hearts to him affect his heart. His heart breaks when those who are his turn from him. If that's you, you're on the run. He's not angry with you. On the contrary, your distance from him has so affected him, he'll do anything to get you back. Come back. Through Hosea's marriage, God has painted for us the real picture of his broken heart, a heart... Uh, made vulnerable to those of us who turn away from him. He's mighty, he's powerful, but he's also hurt, hurt. But he's forgiving and merciful, and hence we read this in verse 11. This is just amazing to me. Also, O Judah, there is a harvest appointed for you. What? This is wayward Judah. There is a harvest appointed for you when I restore the fortunes of my people. Folks, as with Israel, so too with us. If you think God is through with Israel, then he's through with you. I tell you, the world is turning against Israel, including this country's administration. Don't participate in it. Because God will never forsake Israel as an illustration of the fact that he will never forsake you and you and you and me, those of us who are part of the bride of Christ. Here's an illustration of amazing grace, undeserving mercy and grace by Israel and by Judah. When I restore the fortunes of my people. Now, why in the world would God do something like that? He will do it because God's people are always God's people even when they are on the run from God. We see it with Israel. 
We see it with those of us who are part of the church of Jesus Christ. The people's sin was indeed great, but greater still is God's grace. A good way to end uh, tonight's lesson. As I went through this, I thought about this, a great hymn, Marvelous Grace of our loving Lord. Grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt yonder on Calvary's mount outpoured there where the blood of the lamb was spilled.